For almost 40 years, an incredible phenomena has been occurring in a remote village of Bosnia-Herzegovina, which may contain secrets that could change life as we know it. After hearing of a number of miracles from first-hand witnesses, I wonder if this could be a giant wake-up call for humanity. Considering once these secrets are revealed, it could be too late, this just might be worth taking a look into. I'm Shannon Gieselman, and since the day I discovered this place called Medjugorje, I haven't been able to take my mind off of it. Why doesn't everyone know about it? Well, join me as I bring real-life stories of miracles of Medjugorje and why this is a modern-day case for grace. Welcome back to Miracles of Medjugorje, a case for grace. I'm Shannon Gieselman, and today I'm thrilled to introduce to you Mr. Artie Boyle, author of a book I highly recommend called Six Months to Live. Artie, who's a father to 13 children, hat tip to you, sir, (laughs) is here to share his miraculous story after he was diagnosed with terminal cancer at the age of 44. When he heard about Medjugorje, where healings had been known to take place, he and two of his good buddies dropped everything and ventured over to encounter not only a physical healing, but spiritual as well. Upon his return, his doctors were dumbfounded as x-rays proved he was completely healed. And here we are over 20 years today to find you just alive and well. So this is such a pleasure already to have you with us. Thank you for being here. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Um, before we begin our show, I would like to open in a prayer as we begin in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father and Blessed Mother, we thank you for gathering us today to open our hearts and our minds to learn about your good works in Artie. And we're so grateful for this miracle that you have created in him so that he can share his story and help inspire others and bring them to know you, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right. So to get started, Artie, if you would just kind of um, help us understand how you first learned about Medjugorje. I understand it didn't actually um, capture your attention the first time when your wife had told you about it, right? Well, my wife had received a book uh, on the messages of Medjugorje uh, 10 years before I was even sick. And she would try to read me those messages, um, you know, while I'm watching sports on TV or something like that. And of course, that would go in one ear and out the other. And I never really understood what Medjugorje was. She was very much into Fatima and Lourdes and Medjugorje and a lot of those places. And um, Medjugorje was something that wasn't even talked about at the time. And, and even today is, is not as well known as it should be, as, you, as we talked about earlier. So, um, however... Prior to me ever hearing about Medjugorje or anything like that, I was just, like you said, father of 13 children. I live in Hingham, Mass., which is the Boston area. And Judy and I have been married for 47 years now. Uh, We raised our children as any Catholic couple would. She was the real impetus behind all of our our faith. Of course, I had a, a faith, but not as strong as hers. And we would... I would call myself a convenient Catholic, go to church because I was supposed to bring the kids because I was supposed to and, and all that other stuff. But the whole meaning of the thing had escaped me until my experiences in Medjugorje and uh, the importance of the mass and the importance of the sacraments wasn't really in my heart the way 
it became after Medjugorje. Mm -hmm. The way all of that started was, you know, I was 44 years old, very active person. I played, you know, Judy and I, we had to leave college. Uh, People said we weren't going to make it, you know, all this other stuff. And 46, seven years later, 13 kids later and 24 grandkids later, we're doing pretty good. So, you know, people hear that God has a plan in your life and, you know, you don't expect that plan to be leaving college, getting married at 19 and 18 years old, having 13 children, the second being autistic, our eighth child, we lost to sudden infant death syndrome. We've had a lot of ups and downs. And the only thing that's kept us together in all of this has been our faith and faith in Jesus Christ, faith in the Blessed Mother and uh, her intercession for us with Jesus. So anyway, I was 44, avid golfer. I couldn't play four holes of golf uh, without having to stop. Something was burning in my body. Couldn't understand it. Um, Judy suggested I have a physical, which I did. The physical showed I was anemic, which was very unusual for a man. So I had more tests. They found I had this severe erosive esophagitis, which is Barrett's esophagus. It's a precancerous condition. So they put me on a medicine and said, come back in a month. And a month later, I went back to see these doctors and I uh, lost 45 pounds. My face was that gray cancer color. And they said, well, apparently the medicine hasn't taken effect yet. So we're going to keep you on it and come back and see us again in another month. Well, had I done that, I, I wouldn't be talking to you today. Mm. Went home and told Judy what the doctor said. She said, that's crazy. Get into a Boston hospital. Let's find out what's going on. She called the Mass General. And the Mass General said, sure, we can see your husband in about a month. So she started to pray. As she prayed, you know, a good friend that lived 200 miles away just happened to be in the neighborhood, stopped by. Judy told him what was going on with me. He said his sister worked at Mass General. They made a call. And two days later, I had an appointment. I went into Mass General, had a bunch of tests, uh, found nothing, sent me to see hematologists, x-rays, all kinds of stuff. They found nothing. Finally, I said, my daughter is a medical school student. She thinks I should have a CT scan, which they agreed to. Sent me to an off-site facility of Mass General for a CT scan. Simple test. You lie on a table, they slide you in and out of what looks like a big donut, and they tell you to hold your breath. That's all you got to do. They told me I wasn't breathing right. They needed to take more pictures. Uh, When the test was done, the technicians, who I would get to know very well, unfortunately, said, uh, the results will be ready in a day or two. So off I went. As I was driving home, something was pulling me back toward the Mass General Hospital. And as I got close to the hospital, my cell phone rang. It was the doctor's secretary saying, the doctor really needs to see you. So I went, up and the unusual thing was the doctor was waiting for me in his doorway, brought me in, sat me down. He said to me, you have renal cell carcinoma, cancer of the kidney. The intensity of that statement, I'll never forget because I'm like immediately, how much time do I have left? Who's gonna take care of these 13 kids? How's my wife possibly gonna raise these children by herself? Who's gonna teach the boys to play ball? Who's gonna keep the boys from the girls? All this crazy stuff goes through your head in an instant. He said, I need to send you to see an oncologist that sent me out of his office to the cancer center at Mass General. And I stumbled out of there and I went and I waited at Cox 2, which was the cancer ward. Waited for three hours. And when finally I was able to take my head out of my hands and look around the room, 
I could see there were people in that room a lot worse off than I was. And I started thinking to myself, I could beat this cancer. I could fight this thing. You know, I've been athletically trained. I know what to do. Not once did I think of God. The doctor brought me in, brought up the picture on the computer monitor. It showed a tumor the size of my fist sitting in my kidney. Pancreas was wrapped around the tumor and the spleen and lymph nodes were infected as well. It was not a pretty picture. He told me, I need to send you to see a urologist immediately to have all of this cut out. The next morning, I brought my wife to see Dr. Frank McGovern at the Mass General. He is a urologist, who's a surgeon, pragmatic, doesn't pull any punches. He said, this is going to be a very ugly surgery, very ugly procedure. I'm going to have a pancreatic surgeon in the operating room. We have to take some of the pancreas. It's going to bleed through the womb. And on and on he went to tell us how terrible it was going to be. Uh, surgery was scheduled for December 9th, 1999. We had 21 days. In the Bible, in James 5, 14, 16, it says, are you sick? If so, go see the presbyters, the leaders, the priests of the church and have them pray over you. Well, we took this literally. We went to healing services. My wife put uh, the Novena to St. Anthony with my name on it. Her and her sisters put hundreds of them throughout the churches in the south of Boston. People were praying for me everywhere. On December 8th, the day before my surgery, my parish had an all-night prayer vigil for me. Started with the Holy Mass, which is our most powerful prayer. And then during the vigil, I coached an eight-year-old hockey team at the time, and they came up to center aisle and put their hockey jerseys over the front banister, praying for their coach. And then the varsity hockey team from Hingham did the exact same thing. It was very moving stuff. The next morning, my dad took me into the Mass General. Prior to this, uh, I had mentioned the healing services. Prior to the going in, I went to this one particular healing service that was extremely powerful. It was at the Mission Church in Roxbury, which is a healing shrine in the Boston area. Father Ed McDonough was the presiding priest at the time, and I had been recommended to go be prayed over by him in particular. And as I was kneeling in the back of that church, praying for the first time in my life with my heart, which means to pray with love and to truly give control to God, which is very difficult for a man to do. Um, something literally struck me in the chest and knocked me backwards in the pew, physically. And I said to my wife, what was that? And she said, what was what? And we continued to pray. Father came down and prayed over me. This incredible warmth went up through my body and my skin color changed right in front of my wife's eyes from the, the gray cancer color to my normal skin color, had my bloods tested the next day, they were back to normal, scientific improbability. The next day, a couple of days later, I went in for the surgery. While I was in the surgery, the pancreatic surgeon was never needed. A membrane had grown between the tumor and the pancreas, protecting the pancreas. Oh, wow. The doctor removed the kidney, the tumor, the adrenal gland, whatever else he had to remove. And a few weeks later, the pathology report came back. He was literally screaming into his phone. We got it all. The margins are clear. Congratulations. You're going to live a normal life. I was stunned. I didn't expect to hear that. So I started saying to Jesus, thank you for letting me stay here. Uh, I'll, I'll do anything you ask. Just tell me what to do. Of course, I listened. I didn't hear anything. I didn't do anything. Very typical of a man right back into the rat race, chasing the almighty dollar. I didn't change a single thing in my life. 
Well, once you're a cancer patient, especially of that degree, I had a radical nephrectomy, which is a huge surgery and all kinds of things went wrong with anesthesia. We don't need to get into that. But I was on the recovery mend and I went back in for three months later for tests, same technicians, everything's normal. Back in again, eight months later, same two ladies. And they said, you're not breathing right. We need to take more pictures. Well, this time she said, after the tests, you better go back and see your doctor. I went back to the oncologist, brought up the pictures once again. It showed three tumors in my right lung. The cancer had metastasized. Metastatic renal cell carcinoma back in 2000 had no cure. There was no chemo. There's no radiation. There was nothing like they have today. Today, they have like 15 different therapies. But back in 2000, there was only extraction. So the next visit was going to be to the thoracic surgeon. This time I brought my daughter who was in medical school and her husband also in medical school and my wife. And we went to see the thoracic surgeon at Mass General. He sits behind this enormous desk because that's where they sit for protection when they give you the bad news. And he said, I'm gonna cut open your ribs. I'm gonna take out your lung. I'm gonna put it on the table. I'm gonna feel with my hands to make sure I get all the cancer out. Now I had two previous, while I was in the, um, Mass General for the first surgery, they found a, a golf ball sized nodule in my thyroid that also had to come out. Both the surgeries had uh, dramatic negative effects of the anesthesia. So as I'm listening to this guy saying he's going to cut open my ribs and take out my lung, I was like, you're never going to touch me. I, the pain I went through was so intense that I said, I'd rather die than go through from the first surgery with the kidneys, you had so much pain that you didn't want to go back and, yeah. Yeah, the reason I had the pain was because they gave me an epidural and it fell out during the operation. So I woke up cut yeah. in half without any pain meds. I, so yeah. it was unbelievably painful. Uh, oh, gosh. So he was saying, I'm going to do this and that and that. I said, no, you're not. To myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he said, uh, my daughter and her husband, however, asked all the questions. They agreed I had to have the surgery. It was scheduled for September 14th of 2000. The doctor looked at me and said, go home and put your house in order. You have less than 5% chance to survive. I don't know why they tell you that. It just takes away all your hope. Hmm. So basically, he's telling me I'm going to die. He's telling me to go home, put my house in order. And, and the depression, the anxiety that sets in when someone tells you that is unbelievable. It puts a tremendous weight on you that you barely can put one foot in front of the other. So as all this is going on, my brother-in-law, Kevin Gill, who happens to be my best friend, and another good friend, Rob Griffin, they didn't know each other, get invited to play golf together. Never played golf before. As they're playing golf, Robbie Griffin, my other friend, asked Kevin, how are you? how's Artie doing? And Kevin told him, not too good. Going to have his lug removed. Cancer's back. Doesn't look good at all. Robbie said to Kevin, have you ever heard of Medjugorje? And Robbie had tried to get his dad to Medjugorje had heard about Medjugorje 10 years earlier in a hockey locker room with another gentleman, Jackie O'Donohue, a friend of ours, we all play hockey, that had gone to Medjugorje with a terrible accident from a shoulder injury in a car accident, was healed in Medjugorje, didn't tell anybody until that hockey locker room experience with Robbie. So Robbie was determined to get his dad over there. That failed, his dad passed away. And then he said to Kevin, have you ever heard of it? And they talked about Medjugorje. So Kevin called me up. He said, did you ever hear of Medjugorje? And 
What I didn't know is he had already bought three first-class airline tickets to Medjugorje for him, Robbie, and myself. I said, I didn't, I barely knew about it. Judy told me about it. Da, 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 da. It, what is this Rob, he, Robbie, he didn't even really know you. He just went and bought, he bought the cl- first class. Oh, Kevin's, my, Kevin. Kevin's my brother-in-law. Kevin. He bought the tickets. Rob, oh. I knew Rob very well. I, and Kevin's my brother-in-law. They didn't know each other. Oh, they know each other. Got it. Got it. Not well. Now they're getting to know each other. So yeah. Kevin invites, buys the tickets rather for Rob, me and him. Calls me up and he says, uh, asking me about it. He goes, do you want to go? The minute he asked me if I wanted to go, something inside me just got excited. And I said, sure. Well, we're going, we packed two suitcases full of food and water because we're going to this third world country, which we had no idea. I mean, we were so naive as to where we were going and so stupid. He had three guys about to embark on a pilgrimage. Didn't do any background information (laughs) research. We got nothing. We're just we're just blindly going over there. When I got on the plane to go, I had kept a journal and I wrote in the journal, I'm going to Medjugorje to be healed and to see the Blessed Mother. And although I may not actually see her, I know I'll be touched by her in some way. Faith defined in the gospel is the confident assurance of things hoped for and the evidence of things yet unseen. I had written in that book the assurance of things hoped for, and I would later get the evidence of things yet unseen. Mm-hmm. Now, if you haven't been to Medjugorje, it's a place of supernatural peace. In the middle of the village is an enormous church, the Church of St. James. This church probably holds a thousand people, standing room only, or whatever it holds. It's, it's just, it's big. And maybe it's 800, I don't know what the number is, but it's a lot. And the reason I'm saying that is because when they built the church, there was only 95 families in the village. Why would they build such a big church? It didn't make any sense. Yeah. It made no sense. Right. To the left of that church were the boxes, the confessionals. And Robbie, Kevin, and I hadn't been to confession 20, 30 years. None of us remember the last time we were in confession. So we said to ourselves, if we're going to do this, we're going to do it right. So the first thing we did was go to confession. Then we went into the church. They were praying the rosary, and in between the decades of the rosary, they sang the Ave Maria. And they sang, when everybody sings with conviction, it literally lifts your soul into heaven. And I knew I was in the right place. It had been arranged by Robbie through the Marian messages in Boston at the time that we would have a guide. And the guide was going to be one of the visionary's cousins. That's, that's pretty common over there. Her name was Jelka. Jelka was Visca's cousin. Visca is one of the six visionaries. There are six children of Medjugorje that received the apparitions. Three today still receive daily apparitions. Well, Visca, all the visionaries were tasked with certain tasks. You know, pray for the sick, pray for the youth, pray for family, pray for priests. Visca, one of her tasks was to pray for the sick. So she was going to pray over me, which was a great grace. Well, we met Jelka after mass. She said, I'm sorry, I have bad news. Visca had to go to Rome to visit a sick friend. She won't be able to pray over you. We were disappointed, but we were in Medjugorje. Next day we got up, we went to mass. We were there from September 4th till September 10th. My surgery was the 14th. Certainly it was a trip of desperation. Also happened to be Labor Day. Our wives are getting all of our kids back in school by themselves. 
So Jelka said, what would you like to do? We said, we'd like to get our wives something nice. So she took us to a jewelry store, Leo's, down the street, right in Main Street, Medjugorje. It's funny, Leo and I are now good friends, and so is Robbie and Kevin. It's, it's amazing how God works. But we went down to this little tiny jewelry store, and we spent 45 minutes in there shopping for jewelry. Normally, you go in as a guy, you pick something up, and you yeah. find out, right? So <laughs> yeah. I bought five rosary bead bracelets for my daughters, and I'm looking at the gold crosses and chains for my sons, and I was thinking, man, this is expensive. I said to myself, if I can spend the money I spend on golf and hockey and everything else I waste money on, I can certainly spend it on Jesus. As that thought went through my head, there was a commotion immediately to my left. Kevin came over and put his arm around me. He says, do you know who that is standing right next to you? I said, no, it was a little woman. Uh, it was Visca. She had missed her plane from the night before. She just happened to stop in this jewelry store to buy a rosary ring. She was now standing right next to me. Okay. That's a divine appointment. So, I mean, really? <laughs> okay. Okay. Continue on. I'm going to ask you more about Visca though. Cause that's amazing. Well, she plays. Jelka explained who I was. Visca took her little hand and we have pictures of all this stuff and yep. put it on my forehead to pray. Robbie and Kevin put their hands on my back and the heat that went through my body caused them to sweat. That was the beginning of our trip to Medjugorje. Now, Medjugorje is known for um, the sun spinning and dancing, the smell of roses in the air, rosary beads turning to gold. Uh, all of those things happened to us. None of those things are about Medjugorje. Those are nice little touches for the people that go there. Medjugorje is all about the left of St. James Church the boxes. As we were passing St. James to go up the Cross Mountain, this Cross Mountain, which is that cross in, in the background we're looking at right now, built in 1933 um, by, it's a 15-ton cross or whatever it is, by the villages to protect the crops. It's said the Blessed Mother prays there every morning at sunrise with her son. So we were going up that mountain. As we're passing the church to go in that direction, Kevin looked at the confessional, said, you know, I forgot a couple of things. I think I better go back to confession. He did. Robbie and I waited. And after a little while, our door bursts open. Kevin comes in and says, you need to go back to confession. There's a priest there from Liverpool, England. He's unbelievable. He's only going to be there five more minutes. He was so convicted when he was telling us that the three of us got up and sprinted down Main Street, Medjugorje, to go to a place we tried to avoid for the last 30 years. Okay, but you didn't you already go to confession when you first got there? You already did confession, but he's saying you need to go back again and do it with this priest, yes. because why was he so special? Because he was totally different. He's very, um, and, and I'll explain. So I finally get in to the confessional to meet this priest. Loving, soft, warm. It was the first sincere confession I'd ever had. His name was Father Simon Cadwallader from Liverpool, England. It was a God incidence because to this day, 20 something years later, we're very dear friends with him. He was in the Mission Saint Society of St. James. So he was in the uh, Lima, Peru, lived in Liverpool. On the way back and forth, he would spend weeks with us in the Boston area. To this, now he's back in Lima, uh, as Liverpool on a permanent basis as a pastor, but he will come and visit with us. We met this guy in a box halfway across the world in Medjugorje. When I got in to meet him, he told me several things. 
So the Eucharist is the most powerful medicine we have on the planet. Take Jesus into your body as often as possible and ask him to heal you. He told me many other things during the confession, which I had never discussed or talked about before. When I left, the he also said to us, he could sense a building excitement in all of us saying, listen, in the words of St. Francis, when you guys go back to Boston, preach the gospel, but when you have to use words, don't start talking about Medjugorje. People are going to think you're whack jobs and they're not going to listen to a word you say. Wait for them to ask you why you've changed. And that's exactly what we did. And I've been all over the world giving this talk only because people have asked. I left the confessional, the anxiety and the depression that had been weighing so heavily upon me instantly disappeared. I knew immediately that I was invited to Medjugorje, not necessarily for a physical healing, but for a spiritual healing. Mm -hmm. I needed to be spiritually healed. And I believe with my heart that you can be healed of any malady, physical, emotional, psychological, if you are spiritually healed. Because that opens us up and allows the Holy Spirit to enter us and we get rid of all the junk. And the way we're spiritually healed is through a sincere confession and from one other thing, which I'll get into in a second. I knew right away I had to go back and tell people the power of confession. Reconciliation is our second greatest sacrament to the Holy Eucharist. There is no question in my mind. In John 20, Jesus breathed on them and said, peace be with you. Receive the Holy Spirit. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Go out and forgive their sins. Those sins you forgive are forgiven. Those sins you retain are retained. Confession in our faith is not an option. It's a sacrament given to us by Jesus, which gives us a grace, which enables us to walk in the light of Christ. Okay, can I stop you right there? Because I know, I, you know that I'm a newborn Catholic, so coming from Protestant, and I still have that surrounding me. And they ask me a lot, like, why can't I just tell Jesus my, I confess my sins in my own mind? And why do I have to go to a priest and do that? Because it's through, the priest is a vehicle through Jesus Christ. So we can talk to God and, and confess our sins to God, but it's not, in the Catholic faith, it's not an absolution of all your sins. You go to a priest who is a vehicle for Jesus, who is acting is Jesus by proxy. Yep. And like I said, in, in the Bible, Jesus said, those sins you forgive are forgiven, those sins you retain are retained. And what he meant by that is anybody that comes to you that just gives you a confession but isn't sincere about it or just kind of yep. screwing around about it, those sins are not forgiven. If you are sincere about your sins, Yep. and you want to be forgiven, you're forgiven, and they never come back. So that's, it, it, it's, it's a promise by Jesus Christ, and he has said that it has to be done through the priest. And he, he just said, that extra added, I absolve you of your sins. That is the... That once they do that, you're free. You're free and clear, and you have no sins in your soul whatsoever. And they'd never come back unless you yep. sin again. Right. You know, so once you're forgiven, you're forgiven forever. Jesus forgets all about it. And to me, that's why it's such a great sacrament. And, and when you go to a sincere confession, you just always feel so much better when you come out and, and you're able to live your life in a, in a happier, more positive note. It's just, it's the way it's always been for me. It's the way it's always been for a lot of my friends that have gone through the process. And 
uh, if you don't believe in it, you don't believe in it. I mean, yeah. Well, I've, a- I've heard um, also Mariana has said, if you want the ideal optimal experience of Medjugorje, you should begin your pilgrimage with a confession. It's just like Amen. it cleanses you or something before you. It sets up the entire trip. That's why we went initially. And we actually went again the next day. So it was like, People go to confession every day when they're in Medjugorje sometimes. I've, I've never seen anything like it. The <laughs> line is so crowded. Well, just because the, it's really a conversation with the priest. It's not confession yeah. like your picture here where the priest is hiding behind a wall. And yeah. you're face to face. And you're, you're really just having a conversation. And he's the wonderful priests that are over there are helping you through it. Mm-hmm. They say, hey, listen, there's nothing you can tell me that I haven't heard. Mm-hmm. So don't worry about that. And there really isn't. And, you know, it, and they're not judgmental. They forget. These guys are trained to just put this out of their head and they really don't care what you tell them. So it's, it's really a remarkable experience. Uh, you want to find the right priests because it's important to you as a person. That's what we found in Father Simon. Uh, and he's become such a dear friend. So anyway, after that, we went up the mountain. And on the way up the mountain, I felt a pain in my lung and I could put my finger on. I just thought, man, this is getting worse. And if you know Cross Mountain at all, on any given day, there are many, many people on that mountain. Well, we happened to go up on a day that was rainy and we got to the top of the mountain. There was no one there, just me, Rob and Kevin. And we were pleading with Jesus out loud to heal me. We were praying, we were embracing, we were weeping together all things we would have never done in Boston or hang on down. It was just amazing. And I came off the mountain and I called my wife and I said, I don't know what's going on over here. Something's happening. You know, they're going to cut my lung out four days after I land. Please call and get another CT scan before they do that. She called, uh, the doctor secretary called me back and said, Mr. Boyle, we know you're in Medjugorje. We know why you're there. Fact is, you have cancer. It's not going to disappear. We're going to go ahead with the surgery. So my wife did what any good wife would do. She got another doctor. And I would later find out that doctor had sent his parents to Medjugorje and had a picture of Medjugorje hanging in his office. The second doctor. Yeah, the second opinion. Right. Yeah. So, you know, God was clearly working. The only other thing that happened to me in Medjugorje, uh, you know, we, we spent a week of intense prayer and intense worship and I felt a peace come over thee that was supernatural that I know I would never feel again. I actually went the last day to the top of the mountain and lie prostrate and said, just take me now because I know I'll never feel this peace again. And I haven't. It's the peace of heaven. because I, And I know heaven exists just because of that peace. But before we left, we went to see Father Yozo Zavko, who was off-site about 30 miles away in Sroki Briege. He's the original pastor of Medjugorje when it was a communist country and all this other stuff. And we could go into all that, but it's a long story. But we met his two translators, Nancy and Patrick Latta. Oh, that's how they come into the picture. They were translators for Father Yozo. Translators for Father Yozo. Okay. So Nancy said, isn't it wonderful the leaders of American families will come this far to pray? Please come and see me before you leave. Well, there was a whole bunch of people there Father McDonough happened to be there from another group, which we didn't know he was going to be there. He took a fall. There's a big commotion. We had to help him. Lost track of Nancy, figured we'd never see her again. The day we're leaving Medjugorje, a woman approached us and said, would you like to go see Nancy? 
We said yes, and we followed her through the grapevines, the fields of Medjugorje, which are beautiful. And we came to her house, which was literally a castle. And we're waiting in the courtyard, and there's a whole bunch of us, and then eventually everybody disperses, and it's just Nancy, Rob, Kevin, and myself. Kevin gives Nancy a pen and paper to take her information. She bows her head to pray. And she looks up and she looks me in the eye and she said, you need to forgive. I said, forgive? I've been to confession twice. I got nothing left. She said, you need to forgive your mother and father. And my mother and father had just gotten divorced after 43 years of marriage. I immediately broke down and I understood what I had to do. I called my wife. I said, have my entire family present when I get home, please. My, wife, my sons, my daughters, their kids, their husbands and wives, my brothers and sisters, my mother and father. I brought my father up in front of the family. I forgave him for divorcing my mother. My mother didn't like it, but she knew it was something I had to do. I learned in Medjugorje that we need to become an open vessel for the Holy Spirit to heal us. And there's two ways to do it. Actually, there's two things that have to be done. One is a sincere confession and the other is forgiveness. forgiveness. And forgiveness is something that is so hard for people to do because we bury stuff so deep inside of us that we need to pray for the grace to know what it is we need to even forgive. Because yeah. a lot of times we forget. Yep. So I knew, and in my travels, that forgiveness part is one of the most powerful because people are hurt everywhere. We're all the same, we're human beings. Life is not easy. There's a lot of hurt out there. But if we can genuinely forgive and genuinely confess, then we can be healed of anything. And I know this to be true. I'm a living example of it. I came back. I went back for CT scans. They told me I wasn't breathing right. They needed to take more pictures. I started to get excited. I'm flying back to the Mass General Hospital, ran up the thoracic surgeon's office. He told me to wait a minute. I gave him the films. Five minutes later, he calls me, and instead of sitting behind his big desk, he's standing in his threshold, rubbing his fingers to his chin, saying, <laughs> there you go. On September 14th, the Feast of the Triumph of the Cross, instead of having my right lung cut out, I was playing golf with Robbie and Kevin. Thoracic surgeon, urologist, and oncologist all got together, canceled the surgery. Did I've been 20-something years removed from that surgery. 20. Yeah, yeah. Uh, from that whole cancer prognosis, which I was supposed to be dead. And as a matter of fact, my urologist, this is a quick a side story. My son Brian is a big kid. He's six, seven. He played hockey for Boston College. Um, and my urologist happened to be a college hockey fan that went to one of the BC games with a friend of mine. They didn't know that they knew me to, you know, so it was one of those things. So this guy, Joe, says to Dr. McGovern, see the big kid out there? That's my friend, Artie Boyle's kid. And McGovern says, who? He said, Artie Boyle. He goes, I was in his body. And Joe said, snapped his head around, said, you did the surgery on him? He goes, yes. He said, tell me the truth, doc. A thousand guys walk into your office with, a, with Artie have. How many walk out alive? He said, zero. It was truly a miracle. That's, I was just going to say, it had to have changed one of these doctors who witnessed this. Is there a story there that they were maybe not? Dr. Surprised? McGovern is a man of faith. Dr. Yeah. Smith, my, my new oncologist, was a man of faith. 
Dr. McGovern actually went on um, Good Morning America on TV and said, listen, he said, I have to temper this because people think I'm crazy if I start saying there's miracles flying around, I'll lose my practice. <laughs> he said, in the absence of a miracle, this will return. And, you know, it's been 20 something years. So yeah. he, he went right on TV and said, Good Morning America did a whole big piece on it. It was a thing called uh, Entitled Miracles. Um, McGovern said to me, you know, when I went back to see him, and then I stopped going altogether to all tests and everything else, because Jesus healed me. What do I need them for? But he said to me, you know, I've had three instances in my life where I've seen God work a miracle. And he said, you're one of them. He said there was this anchor, uh, sports anchor, Charles Austin from Boston, that had esophageal cancer that was miraculously healed. He said, but the most profound was this older woman. She gets wheeled into my office. She has a mass in her stomach of cancer and I'm gonna remove it. And she's on the operating table. And just as I'm about to put her out, she sits up and startles him. And, and he goes, doc, my Lord told me when you go in there, that's gonna be dust. He goes, okay, lady, <laughs> puts her back down, puts her out. When he went in there, it was dust. So dust. back up. Dust as in it dust. went away. Completely gone. He said, I've seen it with my own eyes. This is the doctor, urologist from Mass General Hospital. He says, I know the power of faith uh, is real. And he says, as a matter of fact, anybody with faith has a far better success rate in surgery than anybody without faith. So that's a, that's a scientific yeah. fact. Yeah. But he said, I've seen faith heal and cause, create miracles through, and he's a very spiritual man. But he's living in a secular world, so he has to be careful with all that. Right. So, okay, this is what I want to ask you specifically going back to Visca when she laid hands on you and you felt the heat. Yeah. Uh, um, do you feel like that was, I mean, is that where the healing took place or is it when you climbed up the mountain and do you feel like that was in anything to do with it? I think it all does. I think or gave you the all, strength to climb up the mountain to get there and have your spiritual experience. I think the whole thing is connected. I think my healing was a process. I think it started at the mission church in Roxbury, where God literally put his finger in my chest and created that membrane. That's where it started. And I think then, and then um, the whole process of Medjugorje through the confession was a huge part of it. Um, climbing the mountain where I felt the pain, was that pain burning away the nodules? Probably, I thought it was getting worse. Visca praying over me the heat that came through me, Father McDonough, the heat that went through me, heat is always associated yeah. with healing. Yeah. And every miraculous healing you've ever heard of, there's always some kind of heat involved. Mm -hmm. And I had several heat experiences. So I must have been a tough nut to crack. <laughs> <laughs> wow. What, but, what was the feeling you got when you were up on top of Cross Mountain and having that moment where you're all hugging each other and just praying with all your heart on the line? It was a it's a feeling and never experience again. It, it was a feeling of just letting go total control and giving it all to God and trusting that God would heal you. And um, sure enough, he did. And the power of, of having other people there with you too, just augments well, that. It's changed. It, not only has it changed my life, it's changed their lives and the entire Boston community, South Shore has changed exponentially. Mm. It's amazing how many prayer groups we've started, how many healing services we've had. 
uh, there are thousands and thousands of people that are converted because of my silly little healing. And it's just amazing. And it continues. It continues all the time. We're talking about kids that are turning to the rosary. We're talking about young adults that are asking questions and getting involved in their faith, all because of one healing. And, you know, so the healing wasn't for me. I mean, I'm grateful. It was for this whole community in the south of Boston to see the power of God. Well, shouldn't it be that everyone who has an experience like you should blast it out to everyone? I mean, I guess you wrote the book, so that's pretty amazing. And that carried some weight and got some traction, right? But everyone who has something like that should be sharing it. I couldn't agree more, Shannon. I've gone hundreds of times. I've been all over the world. I've talked to 6,000 people in Vienna, Austria, 6,000 people in Ireland, 65,000 people in Medjugorje. I've talked to second grade classrooms. I've talked to many, many schools and CCD classes. And almost every time I go and talk, someone comes up and tells me about their healing. And I say, you need to tell people because faith comes from hearing. I know it's a gift from God, but it also comes from hearing. A perfect example is when I was in Medjugorje, I was coming home. My wife was at a cookout with my pastor and the deacon. And she's getting up to leave. And they say, where are you going? She says, I'm going to pick up my husband. He was healed in Medjugorje. They said, that poor girl. (laughs) And when they realized I was healed, my pastor called me up. Pastor for, I don't know, 30 years. I mean, he's an older man. He said, I need to talk to you to reaffirm my faith. I've never seen a miracle. I was blown away. I said, what? You've been a priest for 50 years or whatever it is. I don't know. He's an older gentleman. He was in the Vietnam War. Oh, he probably saw a miracle. He just didn't associate it. No, well, no. He He survived the Vietnam War. That's a miracle. (laughs) What he saw in the Vietnam War was death. He didn't see miracles. So he just, and it was just, to me, it was just amazing that he hadn't. But that's the, that's the profound nature of speaking about healings. So anybody that has one, like you said, I would encourage, get it out there, tell people about it because it gives them hope. Cause you know what? We're all going to go through crap. We're all going to go through it. Something's going to happen. It might not be to us directly, but it's going to be to a family member or a friend, a loved one, whatever. Something's going to happen. Life's tired. These bodies are not perfect. And without faith, it's way too difficult. Um, Would you say that it's your faith or, or something that happened in Medjugorje, like going back to Robbie's dad who didn't make it to Medjugorje and he kind of thinks, wow, he didn't, he kind of attributes it not his miracle not happening because he didn't get to Medjugorje. I mean, surely there are miracles that happen without going to Medjugorje, but is there yeah. something that just like serves it up on a silver platter better to God? I mean, you know, if I, by going there. No, I think that uh, you can be healed in, by not going there. By going there, what you're doing is you're taking away all the distractions of the world. So you don't have TV, you don't have radio, you don't have family, you don't have any other distractions. It's you and God. So there's a huge difference between that and me trying to do that here. Right. If I try and pray and worship and go into silence here, I get 13 kids. I got 24 grandkids. I got all this distraction. I got work. I've got, you know, maybe the Super Bowl's on or whatever. I mean, all this stuff gets in the way. 
is all this noise. You have to get away from the noise. And the beauty of Medjugorje is there's, there's no noise. It's, you know, you, you pray in the rosary, you climb in the mountain, you climb in the hill, Apparition Hill, you go on a mass, you're doing the stations of the cross, you're just sitting in peace. You might be sitting in Colombo's, which is a little restaurant, and you're just enjoying a cappuccino with friends and talking, and it's just peaceful and beautiful. And that's, it's, it changes your body. And I believe I got into such a state of peace that my immune system reboot itself and that's probably how the cancer was killed huh. you know but that's all god yeah you know he helped my immune system kick back in and kill the cancer so you know you don't have to go to medjugorje you don't have to go to lords you don't have to go to fatima all those places are really cool i mean the beauty of medjugorje is she's still appearing there every single day she's not appearing anywhere else big difference so um, have you ever been to one of the apparitions with uh, the visionary? Oh, well, I became very good friends with Ivan Dragicevich. Him and I have traveled around the world together. I've been to maybe a thousand apparitions. So you've oh, seen and, him go into the state of ecstasy and... Oh, it's, the first one I went to was, you know, the smell of roses. And it was, it was at his house, his private house in, in the North End in Boston. Tiny little apartment he owned, but... The first one was this most special, but ever since then, it's just amazing to see that he's actually seeing heaven every single time. He's, and it's like, uh, I can't even imagine. I can't fathom it. I just, I'm so appreciative of being there, but I can't, yeah. I can't fathom it. Yeah, I guess so. Now, now you've dedicated yourself. And this is one of the reasons why I reached out to you, because I did see that you, you made a little pact with our blessed mother that anytime someone asked you to tell your story, you would say yes. So I'm like, all right, I can get <laughs> <laughs> and I'm here to tell you, you made good on that promise. <laughs> That's the truth. I mean, anytime anybody's asked me to go speak anywhere, I've never said no. That's so I've literally awesome. gone on private planes to Medjugorje with very sick people because someone asked me to go with them. And it was literally one of them was a one day turnaround. We went to Medjugorje, prayed with Ivan, came right back. There's so many stories I have. I've been there 19 times, which is pales in comparison to some people, but it, it's not an easy trip for the, I know. I know, know. for the most part, but it's, it's spectacular. And it's like my home away from home. Every time I drive down main street, Medjugorje, now I feel like I'm going home. Everyone so. says that it's home. It is the feeling of coming home. It is. So amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Oh, wow. All right. Well, what would you, what would you say to someone? I always like to end up my interviews with this one. <laughs> what would you just say to someone who doubts in the, the fact that Our Lady is appearing in doubts in Medjugorje, that it's just all one big um, hallucination. I don't know, whatever they contribute it to. Well, people are going to believe what they want to believe. I mean, I, I, I believe what I believe. I just think that Medjugorje has been going on for what, 39 years now. So it, it, if it wasn't of God, it would have disappeared a long time ago. You know, anything that is not of God falls apart. Yeah. And it falls apart relatively quickly. This has continued. If you go to Medjugorje, you can see the enormous lines in confession. You can see the peace of the people there. Everybody's friend. I mean, it, it, you can see it's the whole world. It's a melting pot for the whole world. Whether or not you believe in the apparitions, and I've told people this many times, doesn't matter. Medjugorje is not about the apparitions. It's not about the rosary beads gold and the sun spin it's about confession 
and forgiveness. It's about finding Jesus Christ. It's Our Lady pointing us to Jesus Christ. That's all Medjugorje is. And Pope John Paul II, when asked, by the way, I had a private audience with him in his apartment in the Vatican. If he did not believe in Medjugorje, I wouldn't have got within 100 yards of that place. That's for sure. So he said, are the people going to Mass in Medjugorje? Are the people going to confession? Are the people going to adoration? Are the people praying? Tell the people to go to Medjugorje. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, it's a, it's a very special place. And no, you don't have to go there to be healed. A lot of people can't go. They're not physically able. They don't have the financial means, whatever it is. Uh, but there are plenty of places and churches and healing masses all around the world that, that you can go to right in your own neighborhoods. And so, so what you say to people who are terminally ill, you would just say, get right with Jesus, go to confession and work on forgiveness. And I would say, don't give up hope because you never know when the cure is coming. It could be tomorrow. You stay alive as long as you possibly can, because, you know, we need Jesus. We need faith, but we also need the medical community. And it's so fascinating, the technology that's come along in recent years. Like I said, the cancer I had, they have treatments for it now. They never had treatments when I first had it. If I gave up hope then, I'd be dead. If I get it today, I have all kinds of stuff I can fall back on. Stay alive as long as you can. Don't give up hope. Ever. Of course. Beautiful. Oh, I just adore you, Artie. I hope to stay in touch. Thank you so much. And good luck with all of what you're doing. And Thanks, I'll be I hope you get to Medjugorje. I am on, uh, I'm scheduled to go on Monday. There you go. Ooh, yep. You'll have to text me and let me know how it was. I will. I surely will. All right. <laughs> Thank God you so you. much. God All bless. Right. Bye-bye.